Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Here are my top three favorite things I love about Uberlube. Number one, Uberlube makes sex feel a lot more pleasurable. It's as simple yet as powerful as that. Number two, Uberlube is recommended by leading doctors, and its body-friendly ingredient list is widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. And number three, Uberlube will not stain clothing or bedding. Any spills can be easily cleaned with detergent and water. Get your bottle of Uberlube now with code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. We talk a lot about sex ed, but when we're shopping for products to support our sexual wellness, exploration, and expression, we head to the experts at Lion's Den. For 50-plus years, Lion's Den has been a leader in adult products. Whether you want to explore a new kink or add a little romance to your evening, Lion's Den has something for all. Each location is brightly lit and staffed with the very best experts in pleasure, passion, and romance so you can feel comfortable and confident in your purchases. Lion's Den is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase in-store and online using code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. So, you're ready to experiment with anal play, but you're not sure where to start. If I were you, I'd start with education and products by a company founded by a doctor who's an expert on anal sex. I'm talking about Future Method. Future Method develops science-backed products and doctor-led education to maximize pleasure, eliminate injury, and empower the way people choose to play in the bedroom. They even have a blog that puts education at the forefront on topics both popular and taboo. Use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at futuremethod.com. Let's play a little fill-in-the-blank game where you have to guess what goes in the blank. Cosmopolitan Magazine called the blank the little black dress of vibrators, and Time Magazine named the blank among the top 10 most influential gadgets of all time. Even at 50 years old, the blank is still turning heads as the most recommended and best-selling massage wand in America. Any guesses? The answer is the magic wand. It's loved by millions for a reason. It's powerful and hits all the right pleasure points. Want to see what all the fuss is about? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash magic wand to learn more and see how you could win your very own magic wand rechargeable. Hello, beauties. I am so excited to be here with you today. I have my coffee and I have my drinks and I am thrilled for you to hear this episode. And it's with someone named Garnet Henderson. But in this episode, we talk about the abortion landscape in the US, one year post Roe v. Wade being overturned. Uh, We talk about the fact that abortion pills are very, very safe. And we delve into the medical system. And surprisingly, we go back to the 1800s. And I was schooled by Garnet, which was really fun and really cool. And we also discuss anti-abortion violence, which is really, really a a critical issue that I don't feel like I personally think about or talk about enough. Uh, But this overall is just such a fantastic episode, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, If you haven't heard our Curious Sex Ed episodes yet, check them out. The first three are available through Sex Ed with DB, uh, where me and Mariah from Sex Ed Files, we're doing this podcast together. 
And uh, the one-liner here is that we're real sex educators answering even realer anonymous sex ed questions. And if you want to ask your sex ed question on our anonymous question form on our link tree, go for it. We might answer it on the podcast. And uh, you can check us out exclusively on Buy Me a Coffee for the remainder of the episodes. And I'm really excited. Uh, You folks have been doing the reviews. We've been asking you to rate and review, uh, which is really uh, important for me as someone who does this as a full-time job. Uh, Ratings and reviews allow sponsors and other people to take us more seriously and to see that uh, we have a very engaged audience. So those of you that have rated and reviewed, nice work. Uh, I'm going to read one of the reviews right now uh, from I Heart Cool Games. They said, I cannot express my love for this show. I've listened for the last three years and to hear the breadth of conversation on this show and especially in a post-ops world, this information is more important than ever. Uh, thank you so much, I Heart Cool Games. Very relevant to this episode today, so I really wanted to read that. If you want your review uh, read on the podcast, uh, you can go ahead and go to Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars, review us, uh, do the same thing on Spotify. really, really helps. And yeah, here I am with Garnet Henderson. Hello, Garnet. How's it going today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. I am eating a banana and (laughs) drinking my coffee. I'm kind of like halfway in between those things. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but before I like do a podcast episode, I'm kind of just like, I should be kind of like better at this because (laughs) I've done so many, but I just somehow feel like, oh my God, like I have to go to the bathroom. I need to like go do my things. <laughs> and it's just like somehow like a race, like 15 mm-hmm. minutes before. Does that, what's your, what's your kind of routine before? Are you like set, you know, every minute or are you kind of like me? It really depends, especially because on a lot of the episodes of my podcasts, I have multiple guests. And so I do pretty intensive editing to edit those conversations into a montage, right? Where you're like hearing from different people in various orders. And sometimes I think that takes pressure off the actual interview because I know mm. I'm going to chop it up so much. Right. And so when I'm weird is when I'm getting ready to record my voiceovers for the podcast. Okay. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about like what you do when you do that. Well, I'm I'm also a dancer. I've been a performer my whole life since I was three. And so I think that is the kind of thing that I treat as though it is some kind of a performance. And I do like a vocal warm up, which is an embarrassing thing to admit. But I do, not which I did not do before this. So maybe if you listen to my podcast and my voice sounds different now, that's why. I also record my podcast in my closet, which... Oh, for the acoustics. Yeah. And it sounds better. So apologies to your editor, but it also looks really creepy. It looks like I'm talking to people from like a serial killer lair. Uh-huh. So I don't normally do that when I'm on camera. <laughs> <laughs> totally understood. Okay. Okay. We're trading <laughs> trading uh, secrets here. Um, yes. All right. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us what you do. We already know that you have been dancing your whole life, but tell us about your other life that you uh, that you live. That's right. So my name is Garnet Henderson. I'm the senior multi-platform reporter for Rewire News Group, which is the only national publication that is exclusively focused on reproductive and sexual health rights and justice news. And before I joined the staff at Rewire, I was a freelance journalist for about a decade, also with a big focus on reproductive and sexual health, especially abortion access. And 
I also, as an independent project, host my podcast, which is called Access, a podcast about abortion. And I've been doing that since 2020. Wow, you got that elevator pitch down <laughs> fucking pat that like a reporter, like a reporter does, um, you know, <laughs> succinct. That's yeah, I didn't realize that Rewire was the only news publication focused on reproductive uh, health justice news. That's really, really important. Yeah, it's a little depressing um, when you think about that. Um, But it is also something we're proud of in that we are experts and we know that subject matter super well. And especially among our staff, there's a real encyclopedic knowledge of all kinds of things. Uh, Two of my coworkers, Jess Piclo and Imani Gandhi, have their own podcast called Boom Lawyered because they are both lawyers turned journalists. So we also have that great repro legal journalism angle that you don't get many other places. So that is something that we're proud of. Hell yeah, that's really cool. And I've I've worked with Rewire in the past, um, Mm -hmm. kind of talking about, you know, like sex ed on TikTok and uh, the censorship that we have experienced as sex educators on TikTok and what that looks like and feels like. And yeah, I just really loved working with Rewire. Um, Just a really fantastic publication. If you haven't heard of them, check them out. Well, not now, but after this episode. (laughs) Yes. Um, Okay. Let's talk about your podcast, um, which Mm -hmm. is, as you said, Access, a podcast about abortion. Tell me how your career path led you to want to create this project. Mm. Well, I do love podcasts. I consume a lot of what I would call news commentary through podcasts. So not necessarily the kind of breaking news bulletin stuff, but the deeper dives, um, more in-depth looks at stories that are in the news. I love podcasts with that kind of a focus. And so I was interested in doing something like that at some point. And over the years, I just was coming up against the fact, and I'm sure you've encountered this too, that most people really just don't know very much about abortion. Mm. And so when I would go to parties, for example, and people would ask me what I do, I would always end up talking about abortion because it's something that I was reporting on so much. And the number one thing that I would hear from people, usually who are like, smart, politically engaged people was, oh, wow, I had no idea. Like there were just so many stories and just so many different aspects of abortion access in America that people clearly were not hearing about from whatever media that they were consuming. And I also found as a reporter when I was a freelancer, because as a freelancer, I had to pitch every article that I wrote. So when you're doing that, you have to really sell it and convince an editor that it's something that they want to publish. And I was finding that I was having to do so much more explaining when it came to abortion-related articles than I did for other topics. It just Mm. took a lot of convincing to get editors to understand why certain stories were important. And so that's when I had the idea to create a podcast that would really break down this incredibly complex landscape of abortion access in America one topic at a time, really do a deep dive on something specific in every episode and just answer all of those questions that people might have been afraid to ask or maybe never thought to ask. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting that even I think about this often, like the idea that professionals in a certain field, right? Like not everyone could know everything or even a little bit about everything, but I feel like 
with abortion, I I agree. Like often I'll have conversations with really, really smart, well-intentioned people who I view politically as quote unquote on my side. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, I had a conversation with someone the other day of being like, oh yeah, like one in four people in the US have abortions. And that stat used to be higher. It used to be mm-hmm. one in three. One in three. And yeah. they literally didn't not that they didn't trust me, but they were shocked. They were like, that's crazy. Like, why didn't I know that? And I'm like, why don't you know that? Like, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, we're all in our so, – do you think like being in our own social media bubbles kind of contributes to this idea where people are not really getting this kind of information specifically about abortion? Or what are your, what are your like top theories as to like why don't – you know, let alone like – the rest of the country, right? But we're talking about like people who are theoretically going to the same like colleges as we are, like mm-hmm. reading the same kinds of news sources, like on the same, you know, voting in the same way as us. Like, wh- let's start there. Like, why don't they know that? I really think it all comes back to abortion stigma because I think this has changed in the 10 years that I've been reporting on abortion access, I will say. But I think. Even among people who consider themselves politically left, liberal, progressive, there's still a lot of abortion stigma. There's still an idea that abortion is a shameful or undesirable outcome. Um, Sometimes you hear people say things that explicitly suggest that, like, oh, well, nobody wants an abortion. Mm. You know, or you hear people talking about wanting to reduce the number of abortions in America. Well, why actually is it bad that we have the number of abortions that we do in America, right? Mm. Right. <laughs> um, and I think that part of that comes from the fact that that was the public health frame for a long time. And like you having gone to public health school can speak to that even more than I can. But I was just interviewing an expert yesterday and we were talking about this. And she was saying like, yeah, you know, that actually was not uncommon even just, you know, five or so years ago to talk about reducing abortion as being a desirable outcome. And so I think even people who don't, who wouldn't say that they think abortion is wrong have internalized some kind of shame about it. And I really think that's where that comes from, because if it's shocking to you that one in four people capable of becoming pregnant has had an abortion, what that means really is that there are several people in your life who have had abortions and they just haven't told you, Hmm. right? And so why haven't they told you? Why didn't they feel comfortable telling you? Totally. Yeah. And And like, you know, we can get into this later, but I do think there's this like moral judgment, like you said, Mm -hmm. then that goes along with stigma and shame of being like, oh, well, when we're comparing a miscarriage, right, to an abortion, there's this idea of like, well, that that was like God's will or that that just happened, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this idea like when women and people with uteruses make that choice for themselves, for their families. A majority of them are already parents. We know the data on mm-hmm. this. Like then, there's this judgment, and so I just think it's so like important for us to really parse that out. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on a little bit specifically to the Dobbs leak, um, mm-hmm. which happened uh, basically a year ago. You know, almost today, uh, June uh, of 2022. 
And, you know, I think we at Sex Ed with DB, we talk a lot about abortion in general on this podcast. We've talked about abortion in the media. We've talked about uh, the turnaway study. We've talked about Mm -hmm. abortion pills. We've talked about what an abortion looks like at nine weeks. Like there are many, many ways that we've discussed abortion. But our last episode, really looking at the national landscape uh, around abortion and abortion access was probably around this time of the Dobbs leak about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you can, you know, share what has changed in abortion access since Dobbs about a year ago and who has been the most affected. And now I caveat this by saying, this is a very large question. We could talk Mm -hmm. about this for hours and hours. So maybe like if there are like three really big trends that you're finding in your reporting um, or through doing your podcast, like what, what do folks need to know? Mm -hmm. Well, we now have more than a dozen States that have banned all or most abortions. Um, And a few of those States uh, things keep kind of bouncing back and forth as different legal challenges make their way through the courts. But those States are concentrated in the South and Midwest And those are the parts of the country where it was already hardest to get an abortion, particularly for low-income people and people of color. So they're the people who have always been most affected by abortion bans and young people as well, I'll add. And they're the people who have been most affected by that loss of uh, the idea that there was a right to abortion in our constitution. Mm. The loss Um, of the idea is important. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Because really people in in the same states that have now banned abortion were already living a a post-Roe reality. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do have an estimate that there may be around 32,260 people who have not been able to get abortions. And that's an estimate that the Society of Family Planning made. And they did that by looking at the decline really the complete fall in the number of abortions in states that have banned abortion and the increase in the number of abortions in states where abortion is still legal. So basically they used that data to estimate the number of people who seem to have traveled to another state Mm. and gotten their abortion. And then that 32,260 is basically the number of people who normally would have gotten an abortion in that same time span. Um, And that's how many fewer abortions there have been. So over 32,000 people may have been unable to access a legal abortion. Um, Some of those people, of course, might have bought abortion pills online or gotten them from a friend and self-managed their own abortions at home. Um, And on one hand, that's a positive outcome because illegal abortions can be safe thanks to medication abortion. And that's something that is so important and so different from the time in the United States prior to Roe versus Wade. But along with that comes concerns about criminalization Um, because self-managed abortion is only specifically banned in a handful of states. Uh, Most places it is not illegal, but we know that people have been criminalized for their pregnancy outcomes again, especially black and indigenous people and all people of color and low income people Even when Roe was in place, there are lots of cases where prosecutors have used laws that really were not intended to criminalize abortion, but they have used them that way. And, you know, the most prominent example of that at the moment is that there's a teenager in Nebraska and both she 
and her mother are facing criminal charges um, because she self-managed an abortion, allegedly, with pills. Um, And that girl took a plea deal. She faces years um, in jail, and her mother is actually facing even more time. They're basically prosecuting her mother as though she was a drug dealer rather than just someone who got her child abortion pills. Um, Yeah, so that's really disturbing. And then, of course we are likely to see an increase in the rates of pregnancy-related death, which already are abominably high in the United States, especially for Black women. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of stories about people who experienced really dangerous medical complications because they were denied early abortions. And unfortunately, we're just also going to see a lot more people carrying pregnancy to term and Pregnancy is inherently risky, especially if you are a low-income person of color in the South or Midwest, um, where, again, like access to health care was already worse <laughs> than everywhere right. else in the country, and now you can't access an abortion. So we're going to see more people dying in childbirth as well. Oof. Yeah. I mean, I think this idea and we've we try to say this so many times on the podcast so i really hope it gets across but like before roe v wade was overturned like many people were living this reality where things were challenging it was challenging already for many people specifically bipoc and low-income people to access abortion without the the illegalness of it now right Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so i think it's like it's a big wake-up call for everyone, but it should have happened a long time ago. Um, and so I don't know, in a way, like many experts have been like, trust me, like this is going to happen, like just wait. And then Mm -hmm. it did. And now I wonder like, what do we do about it? Like, what do we do to kind of ensure that we fight back against this and that it doesn't kind of just become like a one-off thing, but that it needs to be ingrained in us in order to fight for reproductive justice and rights for people who need them. Yeah, you're exactly right that Roe was never enough. Uh, It never ensured, and specifically in our lifetimes, it really never ensured that everyone who needed an abortion could get one. And so again, I actually think a lot of this comes back to abortion stigma because a lot of people still have an idea that there it's reasonable for there to be some kind of restrictions on abortion access. We see that in polling, that even a lot of people who believe that abortion should be broadly legal believe it's reasonable for there to be some limits. And the thing is, a limit is really just a ban by another name. Any limits on access to abortion make it harder for people to get abortions, delay them, uh, mean that they're seeking an abortion later in their pregnancy oftentimes than they really wanted to be. So any type of limit is always going to mean there's somebody who needed an abortion and didn't get one. So I think it's really time to rethink the idea that it's reasonable for the government to limit access to abortion at all. Um, And in a way, that's actually returning to a much earlier idea. That's actually what the lawyers who argued Roe versus Wade were arguing for. They were saying that the state, the government, has no compelling interest in regulating pregnancy. 
And it was the Supreme Court justices at that time in the 1970s who decided they needed to create this really complicated compromise. (laughs) So it's important to remember when you hear the notion of a compromise, like now we hear, you know, that a 15-week ban, for example, or a 12-week ban, as was recently passed in North Carolina and Nebraska, that that's a compromise. But Roe was actually a compromise. So I think it's really time to reimagine our whole idea that it's reasonable to regulate abortion and advocate not just to restore Roe, which is the big rallying cry with a lot of Democratic politicians right Mm -hmm. now, but to simply remove all legal limits on access to abortion. I think it's really time to be bold and be radical. Mm. Yeah, break the whole fucking thing down, really. Exactly. And rebuild it. Uh, you know, it's really interesting too, that that's coming up for me is thinking about this idea where in like the, I don't know when this started, but I'm going to say like maybe the forties, fifties, sixties, where doctors and medical professionals were really seen as like gods, right? Yes. Like they were very much revered. It was kind of like, whatever the doctor say goes, like, this is such a profession that we want all of our kids and our kids' kids to be, Mm -hmm. right? And there's this idea where like, and I'm a little biased because my mom is an OBGYN and I hear a lot (laughs) of her stories, but like doctors are not revered in the same way anymore. In fact, Mm -hmm. like state legislatures like theoretically have more power to regulate someone's body and say what a woman or a person with a uterus can or can't do with that body compared to what a doctor would say. And the doctor has the research and the years of medical training. And, you know, of course, not all doctors, you know, believe that abortion should happen. And yet, like, we're not really viewing doctors and medical professionals in the same way as we used to. Is that, do you do reporting on like the idea of doctors? Like, what does that look like? I certainly think it's true that the way we view doctors is really different. Um, But I also think what's important is that most of all, we're not listening to patients. We're not Mm. listening to people who are pregnant or can become pregnant when they tell us what they want and what they need. Um, Totally. Because I do think there are so many wonderful doctors out there. I'm lucky enough to interview them all the time. And especially when we're talking about abortion providers, these are people who are risking their lives (laughs) um, to provide abortion care. And they know that every single day. Uh, Just two days ago was the anniversary of the murder of Dr. George Tiller, actually, who was assassinated in 2009 because he was an abortion provider. He had survived an earlier assassination attempt in the 90s uh, and then was killed in 2009. That's not very long ago. Um, but you know, a not so fun fact is that abortion bans in the United States were actually originated by the American Medical Association. Oh, <laughs> really bad. Okay. Do you want to tell us a little yes. bit more about that? So this is something I've reported on quite a bit. Um, the American Medical Association president is not a fan of mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so If you think back before the 40s and 50s, we're talking about the mid-1800s now. Oh, my. This is when university-trained physicians first really became a thing. 
And at the time, people did not respect them. People were still going to the medical providers they had been going to for generations. Sometimes those were skilled midwives, but they also were people like barbers, you know, who would do bloodletting, homeopaths, just straight up snake oil salesmen. Right, right, right. There was a very bizarre landscape. And university trained physicians were like, we have to do something about this. And they were particularly threatened by the midwives. Um, because those midwives were skilled and they did have generations of knowledge um, about how to care for people who were pregnant and giving birth and also about how to provide abortions. And so the American Medical Association identified abortion as their wedge issue. And they started going around to every state and painting abortion as something that was incredibly dangerous, midwives as these dangerous, unskilled practitioners. Of course, it's not a coincidence that a lot of midwives were women of color, particularly mm. in the black community, right? Enslaved people did not have access to good medical care. So people became their own doctors and their own midwives for their community. Um, and so basically doctors set out to put midwives out of business and they did that very successfully. And within just a matter of decades, every state in the U S had banned abortion. So when you hear about pre row bans being in effect in some States, you have the American medical association to thank for that. So the medical field actually has a lot to answer for when it comes to the history of the legality of abortion in our country. This is complex. I did not anticipate yes. <laughs> going back and back. You're totally right. And yeah, we could go on. We can have a whole episode about like oh, yeah. how terrible, you know, the medical industrial complex is and like yes. all of the <laughs> shit that doctors do wrong. And at the same time, I think like in our current landscape where we are today, I just find it very interesting this idea that we're not listening to the science. I guess I shouldn't even mm -hmm. be talking about doctors. It's more because doctors should be advocating for the science and mm -hmm. like for the facts. And that's really, I think, the the point that I'm trying to get at. Yeah. And I do agree with that. And I also think that hospitals are not supporting doctors. And mm. that's a really important thing to understand. So when we hear these horrible stories of people who are experiencing life-threatening pregnancy complications and they get turned away, they get told this isn't bad enough yet, that's because that hospital's legal team has decided to interpret the state's abortion ban in the most conservative way possible. Mm -hmm. So the doctors are afraid to care for that patient then because they don't want to A, go to jail, or B, lose their license. And instead, hospitals, because who has the real money and power now? It's hospitals, right? And right. instead, hospitals could be using those lawyers to stand up and say no. We're not doing this. Nobody is going to die on our watch. Sue us if you want. Come get us right? Mm -hmm. They could be offering doctors the protection they need in order to do their jobs. And they're not doing that. So I think really, you know, that's where, that's where we need to be pointing the finger is at hospital administrators. If you're tired of hearing the same old judgmental, shaming financial advice about buying too many lattes from old white men who conveniently ignore issues like systemic oppression, it's time to join us on Financial Feminist. I'm Tori Dunlap, globally recognized money speaker and educator, and I'm a part of a new guard of financial educators. On Financial Feminist, we don't just talk about money. We talk about the ways women are affected differently by money. We're feminist first, acknowledging that your financial savviness has less to do with your weekly coffee order and everything to do with the fact that we live 
in a patriarchal society that gatekeeps women, people of color, and other minorities out of conversations and education about money. With fascinating guests like Nadia Okamoto, Maya Vander, Justin Baldoni, Christy Carlson Romano, Queen Herbie, and more, we dive into topics like menstrual justice, the investing gap, diet culture, the psychology of money, and more. Plus, you get bi-weekly how-to episodes like how to start investing or how I saved $100,000 at age 25. We're smashing the patriarchy and getting rich one episode at a time. Subscribe to Financial Feminist wherever you're listening now. Ever since getting engaged to my wonderful fiance, I've been thinking about ways to keep things fun and novel between us, but I, of course, want it to feel organic. I want to be able to feel sexy and comfortable in my body while trying something new. Thanks to Lion's Den, a new adventure I've been exploring is the world of lingerie. I never really was a big lingerie girl myself, but once I started trying on lingerie that accentuated my curves, felt super soft to the touch, and made me look in the mirror and felt wildly confident in my skin, that changed pretty quickly. Plus, when I searched for what I might like on Lion's Den's website, I saw models that actually looked like me. They were curvy and thick and voluptuous, and it made all the difference to see models that have my body type. Want to join me in my new lingerie chapter? Right now, you can use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off your purchase in-store and online at lionsden.com. Follow them on social media at Lion's Den Adult on IG and TikTok for exclusive offers, deals, and giveaways. Finally, we can travel again. If you're like me, I bet you want a little pleasure while you're away, but can't fit your entire sex toy collection in your carry-on, huh? Say hello to the Magic Wand Mini. Born into such a famous family, this little wand has quite a reputation to uphold. Challenge accepted. Offering big power, multiple speeds, and unsurpassed quality, the full-featured Magic Wand Mini is more than simply a smaller sibling. It's here to create a legacy all its own. Want to win a Magic Wand Mini for your next trip or staycation? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash magicwand to learn more. What do you know about pegging? If you've seen that one incredible Broad City episode like the rest of us, you probably know that pegging involves a woman, trans man, or non-binary individual without a penis wearing a strap-on dildo and penetrating their partner who has a penis. But did you know that there are actual benefits of pegging for straight couples? I'll share a few with you from an anal surgeon and booty expert at Future Method. Number one, reaching the full potential of one's orgasms. Prostate orgasms are powerful and can often be felt throughout the body. Number two, becoming closer with your partner and adding new dimensions to your relationships. And number three, learning to be submissive or dominating in a new position can be quite difficult to achieve, but when you can master these sensations, it opens the door to new relationship dynamics. Go to futuremethod.com to check out the expert written guide on pegging, and don't forget to use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at checkout for amazing button gut goodies. Let's talk about a lube I absolutely love, UberLube. UberLube makes sex better for everyone by reducing friction and increasing pleasure. Whether you're using it for solo sex, sex with a partner, or both, UberLube has a long-lasting performance that lets skin feel skin. It has simple body and condom-friendly ingredients, is scent and color-free, dissipates when no longer needed so there's no sticky residue, and is recommended by leading doctors. Use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com.
Thank you for that lesson. That was really, really cool. And you're just so knowledgeable. So I'm glad to have you here. We have a Thank lot you. more to get through. So let's <laughs> yeah. uh, let's ask some more questions. Um, we talked about this a little bit before, but with the idea of self-managed abortion with abortion pills, right? Mm-hmm. I think like in the past year, especially after, you know, Roe v. Wade was overturned, there have been a lot of headlines and court rulings and misinformation about abortion pills. And Mm. I want to know from you, where are we now with abortion pills and what do people need to know about them? Well, first of all, they need to know that abortion pills are really safe. Serious complications happen less than 1%. It's less than one half of 1% of the time Mm. with medication abortion. Okay. So it is very safe. Um, There is a legal battle right now regarding access to mifepristone, which is one of the two drugs that is typically used in medication abortion. And right now, access to mifepristone remains unchanged. So it is not available legally in states that have banned abortion, but it's available everywhere else. And even if you live in a banned state, you can still get abortion pills online. Uh, But there is a case that was filed in federal court in Texas. It has bounced all around through various levels um, of appeals. Most recently, there were oral arguments before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and we're waiting on them to decide and see what they're going to do. But the good-ish news is that the Supreme Court has basically issued a stay, which means they've put any changes on hold until the case is fully resolved. And this is something that we absolutely expect will make its way back to the Supreme Court. It could be as early as their next session, which starts in the fall. Mm. So June is the end of the season where the Supreme Court issues its decisions, and then they leave. They're done for the summer, and they'll be back in session in the fall. So depending on how quickly this case moves through the courts, it could be back before them in their next term. It's possible if it moves slowly enough, maybe it would be the term after that. But either way, we are probably going to get a pretty bonkers opinion from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals because they are notoriously conservative, Mm. but no matter how wacky and out there their opinion is, nothing's going to change until this case gets back before the Supreme Court, at least. Right. And like you said, you know, I I talk a lot on social media about like plan C pills and just Mm -hmm. like the way in which that someone can access abortion medication. Mm -hmm. Um, There's Carafem, there's, you know, a lot of different, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, hey Jane, there's a lot of different organizations um, that we talk about. And I just feel like the more information and the more facts you can get about medication abortion, the better someone who might need to take it or want to take those pills uh, might feel about the, mm-hmm. the way in which that their body might react, what they can do if something doesn't feel right, um, who they can talk to after the fact, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like it's equally as important to talk about the facts and the fact that it's safe as well as that criminalization as we see with this mom and daughter in Nebraska is a very real and scary thing. And like, this does not come without risk, especially depending on where you are. Um, And so, yeah, like abortion funds are really, really important. I know the Yellowhammer fund um, for, you know, folks in the South 
if you're there, definitely check them out. Um, see what other kinds of abortion funds that there are out there because it can be a very expensive, like challenging process mm-hmm. for folks who have children who need to, you know, take off work, who need to do X, Y, and Z in order to take care of themselves. And so, yeah, I just, I really feel for people who are in those positions and it's, it's really, really important that we cover like all sides of this. Absolutely. Um, I think I need an A is also a great resource. It's I need an A.com. It's a directory so you can find abortion clinics, but also telemedicine services, you know, places that will mail pills to you. And they're introducing a lot of really cool advanced search tools to help you figure out what, especially if you want to go to a clinic in person, what clinic, if you have to travel out of state, is going to be not just closest, but most convenient for you based on, you know, if the other states you might have to travel to have waiting periods or they have parental notification laws if you're under 18. So they're introducing a lot of amazing search tools and they also can connect you with abortion funds and practical support networks. And um, other resources, too, like the If, When, How Repro Legal Helpline. Um, and there's also the Miscarriage and Abortion Hotline. If you have taken abortion pills and you're worried about something, you can call the M&A Hotline and an actual medical professional will help you out. Amazing. I also just want to cover this idea really quick that, you know, there's a lot of like misinformation that's spread, obviously, about abortion. But I think one that I really want to hit home for people that is not true is that people who get abortions uh, regret them. I wonder mm-hmm. if you can talk about the the studies and the data that show otherwise. Yeah. Um, I actually dedicated a whole episode of Access to this. It's episode eight. It's called Reframing Abortion Regret. Um, if you've spoken about the turnaway study on the show, then your listeners might already know. Um, there's a statistic from the turnaway study where they found that 95% of participants said they did not regret their abortions. And what I learned from talking to the researchers behind that study is that even that 5% of people who said they felt regret often didn't regret having the abortion. They regretted the circumstances around it, if that makes sense. They regretted being in a position where they had to make that choice. Mm. So I interviewed someone on that episode whose story has always really stuck with me, where she had just um, ended a relationship. She had just broken up with her partner when she found out she's pregnant. She's in her mid-30s. She's someone who really wants to become a parent. So she really considered continuing that pregnancy because she was worried she might not be able to get pregnant again. But her former partner basically made it clear that he was going to make her life really difficult if she did that. And so she made the choice to have an abortion because she knew that that was what was best for her and also that that wasn't a good situation to bring a child into. So she feels good about that decision, but she regrets the circumstance, right? She regrets being faced with that choice. She feels sadness around it, but it's not because something about having an abortion inherently damaged her. It's just that she was at a difficult point in her life and abortion was the solution. And she still feels sad about that, which I think is really understandable. I think it's so important to make space for the fact that people sometimes have complicated feelings about abortion and not always right. For a lot of people, I've interviewed so many people who said, "Mm, no, it was such an easy choice. (laughs) Right. 
But also some people do have really complicated feelings and that's okay. And we can talk about that, I think, without playing into that anti-abortion narrative that abortion harms women. Yes. Yeah. Like, are we not allowed to like feel a full array of feelings based on like a thing that you maybe know is right, but is still challenging and hard and could be sad? Exactly. We make decisions like that as adults all the time. (laughs) That's life. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that you, that you talked about that. Um, Let's talk about your piece that's coming out soon um, Mm -hmm. on anti-abortion violence. Uh, Tell us about that. Uh, What is a really critical topic that most people should really be aware of, um, which I I just don't know that we're talking about this enough. So I'm glad that you're that you're doing a piece on this. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, we have a big content drop coming up at Rewire. We do these quarterly special issues that we think of like a digital magazine. And this next one is called Dobbs and Democracy. So we're looking at the erosion of abortion rights and how that affects our democracy here in the United States. And I looked at anti-abortion violence because anti-abortion violence is so deeply tied to far-right political violence in this country. So, so many abortion providers have told me a similar story, which is that on January 6, 2021, they were all so confused because they looked outside their clinics and the people who are normally standing out there screaming at patients as they come in, harassing people, trying to block the doors, just weren't there. And then when the news of the attack on the Capitol broke, they turned on the TV and they recognized... (laughs) All of their regular protesters. (laughs) Oh, there's uh, Joe and Jerry. and That's right. So many, I mean, the list is long. Many prominent anti-abortion activists uh, participated in the insurrection. And yes, that might sound surprising, but it actually really tracks because the (laughs) anti-abortion, yes, the anti-abortion movement is deeply tied to white supremacy and Christian nationalism. All those same groups that stormed the Capitol are often sending people to scream at people outside of abortion clinics. They're all connected. Um, And, you know, in the late 80s and 90s in the United States, there were lots of mass clinic blockades where thousands of people would show up to block access to abortion clinics. And there was a law passed in 1994 called the FACE Act, the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, that made it a federal crime to do that, um, as well as to harass, intimidate, threaten, harm anyone who works in an abortion clinic or is seeking abortion care. And so that did cut down on those really mass demonstrations But actually, other forms of anti-abortion violence have continued to increase over time. And there was a huge spike around 2016, 2017, which what happened then? Donald Trump got elected president, right? So a lot of abortion providers connect it back to that. Um, Mm. I've heard really disturbing stories. People showing up to clinics with AR-15s. Uh, Yeah. In the last year in particular, there's been a really big increase in bomb threats, Uh, And also there were four in 2022, four anthrax or other bioterrorism threats uh, at abortion clinics. That's also something that hasn't been seen since the 90s. The rate of assault and battery really spiked during the pandemic outside abortion clinics. 
And uh, the National Abortion Federation, which is a professional organization for abortion providers, releases statistics every year on violence and disruption at abortion clinics. And their most recent support uh, report on their 2022 statistics shows that there was a really significant increase in violence at clinics in states where abortion is still legal. So that is something that providers had told me they were afraid of, that mm. as more patients travel to those legal states, the violent protesters will come along with them. And that does seem to be what's happening. So states like New York, California, Washington, places that didn't used to see the most aggressive protester activity, I would say, have really seen an uptick in that kind of aggressive activity and violence. Hmm. And so I think that's something that's really important to understand. You know, the anti-abortion movement is not going to stop at making abortion illegal, right? They really want to make abortion providers afraid to go to work, and they want to make people afraid to go to abortion clinics. What do we do? What do we do about this? Like, I understand that this is like a very complicated thing. That's not like, oh, well, just like put do this thing and like, you know, it's going to fix it. But I just like I feel like I don't really know how to grasp like obviously it's, you know, it's the easy access to guns. It's like what people are learning mm-hmm. in religious school. It's what people are learning in their public schools that are, you know, taught by whatever, you know what I mean? There's just like, yeah. there's so many pieces to it. And I just feel, do you ever just, are you like, what the fuck? I don't know. I don't know what to do here. <laughs> yes. Uh, on often. this uh, often. Yes. All the time. And I'm aware that, you know, <laughs> it's hard when everything is doom and gloom because you do not want people to tune that out. And I think it is tempting to tune out when all the news seems bad. But I think the good news is that at least what I always remind myself is just the people I talk to, (laughs) I might actually cry. The people I talk to every week who are literally moving heaven and earth (laughs) Mm. to get people abortions um, are just incredible and they're really brave and they shouldn't have to be but they are, and they're out there every day doing it. And that's something that gives me hope. But on the subject of violence specifically, back to hospitals. I love to hate on hospitals (laughs) because they could be helping out. Only Mm. 5% of abortions in the U.S. happen in hospitals and private doctor's offices. 95% in clinics. So hospitals often, and OBGYNs in private practice, Um, are often just referring their patients out to a clinic for abortion care when they could do that abortion themselves, especially OBGYNs. Come on. (laughs) Right. So more doctors in private practice and more hospitals could just be offering their own patients abortion care. That would decrease some of the load on those clinics and take at least some of that target off their backs, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly in communities that don't have a lot of clinics. If you know everybody who gets an abortion has to go to this one clinic, it's so easy to target it. But what if there were five places because there were four hospitals? That would really help, right? Especially because hospitals are big buildings, right? Harder to harass people going in and out of a hospital. Not that it doesn't happen. That's very true. Yeah, yeah, it's and then you talk about oh well, some are Catholic hospitals, so they're not going to change. That's their- right. Oh my God, that's a whole other thing. We can't even talk <laughs> yes. about that anymore. But yes, <laughs> totally agreed that like there are so many more people 
who have power and access who should be contributing positively to this cause and they're not. And Mm -hmm. I think like putting pressure on those institutions and continuing to talk about abortion whenever we get the chance Mm -hmm. uh, is and and donating money to our abortion funds and, you know, doing an array of things is, is what we can do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Garnet, this has been so cool to have you on. Uh, I wonder if you can just share some recommendations for people to find up-to-date, accurate information about abortion care and rights, and where can people find you if they want to check out your stuff? Absolutely. I think it's always a great idea to get plugged in with your local abortion fund. Um, Mm. Like you were saying, Danielle, obviously they help people, they pay for abortions, but they also are the ones who tend to have that minute by minute information about what is going on in your community with abortion access. So don't clog up their hotlines. People who need help paying for their abortions are the ones who need to be able to call them, but find your local abortion fund on social media um, and start following them and pay attention to any calls that they put out for help or other action items. I think that's a good way to stay informed and to get more involved if you want. And uh, of course, I have to plug Rewire because we are (laughs) focused on reproductive and sexual health. So we sure do have a lot of abortion news. So you can find us at rewirenewsgroup.com. We are also at Rewire News Group on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I am at Garnet Henderson on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find my podcast access wherever you get your podcasts or at access pod also on Instagram and Twitter. Another fantastic elevator pitch. Thank you, Garnet, (laughs) for being on. This has been really, really enlightening and just such an important conversation. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Our creator, host, and executive producer is me, Danielle Bezalow. Our producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our associate producer and communications coordinator is Sadie Luigi. Our marketing coordinator is Kate Fiala. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Thanks so much to our featured guests, partners, and listeners with db at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. For exclusive content and to submit an anonymous sex ed question, check out my new podcast on Fridays, Curious Sex Ed, hosted with Mariah Claudio of Sex Ed Files. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash curiouss sex ed to learn more. See you next time.